You might know her. You might see her in your feed quite regularly. Self-confessed business fanatic who loves everything to do with fintech. I actually saw her come up on my feed a few times and looked at her setup and I was like, you know what? I kind of want to be just like that. She builds a lot of content. She's got a really strong brand. Very positive in her approach. Lots of good messages for people to follow. Belinda Agnew. Belinda Agnew. Belinda Agnew. Belinda Agnew. Hold on for this one, guys. When we started this business, we were shouting from rooftops and saying e-commerce is the future. You've got to have an online presence. Mm. Um, Online shopping is a great industry. It's so convenient. It's all of this and that. The business leaders around the country were, oh, e-commerce isn't real. It's just a fad. It's just short-term trend, all of this sort of stuff. So it was finally through COVID that our biggest retailers started running TV ads saying, hey, come shop online. To us, it was sort of being vindicated for what we've been saying for the for last years. 17 years. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to Startups and Unicorns with Belinda Agnew, your home to learn all things funding, scaling, talent, branding, and the billion-dollar dream. Finding out how to be a unicorn in a field of horses. Hear from industry founders and discover how to stand out to those who matter most to your business. With your host, tech startup fanatic, Belinda Agnew. Welcome to another episode with your host, B, Startup and Unicorns. In today's podcast, we're about to dive into the extraordinary journey of a true game changer in the tech and e-commerce world, Ruslan Kogan. Hailing from Australia, Ruslan's story is a classic rags to riches tale. He had taken the e-commerce scene by a storm, building an empire that completely transformed the way we shop and interact with technology. What sets Ruslan apart is his relentless pursuit of making high quality tech accessible and affordable for everyone. He saw the untapped potential of e-commerce and fearlessly disrupted the market, challenging the status quo like a boss. But Ruslan's impact goes far beyond selling products. He's a visionary who understands the pulse of the market and desires of consumers. He's always ahead of the curve, predicting trends and adapting his business accordingly. In the cutthroat world of entrepreneurship, Ruslan's resilience and unwavering belief in his vision have made him a true inspiration today. He's a living testament to the power of perseverance and adaptability, showing us that anything is possible if you're willing to hustle and follow your gut. So join us as we step into the brilliant mind of Ruslan Kogan, where we uncover the invaluable lessons he's learnt, celebrate his achievements and get a sneak peek into the future of technology and e-commerce through his visionary eyes. This episode was literally the best episode I have done to date. Get ready to be inspired, motivated, and challenged to take your own entrepreneurial journey to the next level. This is one podcast episode you won't want to miss. Trust me. I think um, we were saying earlier, there's so many pronunciations like Ruslan, Russell, Ruslan. Can we call you R to make it like really? you. (laughs) I'll answer to that as well. I've had so many variations over the years. It's a tricky name. So I've become accustomed to just answering to everything. I know. I feel like everyone has a nickname in like school and then in the workplace and then growing up, everyone kind of like changes. I really want to start with your upbringing because I think that is where 
a lot of entrepreneurs can be quite the same, but different. Tell us about how you came to Australia because you grew up in Belarus and you moved to Australia at the age of six Yeah, and your parents landed here with $90. So tell us about that, your upbringing first. Did you know that you had an entrepreneurial spirit in Belarus? Was that Yeah, no, probably not. I guess, you know, growing up in a in a communist country and, um, you know, with communist systems all around, you don't really get exposure to business or entrepreneurship, especially as someone, you know, being pretty young, six years old um, at the time. And even my parents, I could see when we arrived, um, I had a bit of a knack for business and very quickly, you know, at school and um, started to try and find ways to earn money. But I could see with my parents that they were per hour employees. And whilst, um, you know, they did absolutely everything they could to have a loving home and they worked their butt off and worked so hard, um, we were we grew up in the Housing Commission flats in Elstonwick and my parents would drive to the Dandenong markets to buy fruit and veg. And I'd say, why are you doing that? And they would say like, oh, you know, it's um, it's cheaper there. But think about the time that it takes you to get there, the opportunity cost and so on. So, you know, the entrepreneurial mindset isn't really something that you get as growing up in a, in a communist country. But I did, I did um, learn that afterwards, you know, I never thought I'm getting any business skills from my parents and I never thought that they're the... Uh, they're the ones that are teaching me a lot of the business skills that I use now. But then when I reflect on my upbringing and I, and you think about what does it take to be an immigrant? You've got mm. to drop everything you've got, travel into the unknown and work your butt off for a potential benefit that might not even be there. So it's exactly what my parents did. They dropped their whole lives, pursue a better opportunity for their kids, worked really hard. They, mum worked three or four jobs, so did dad, studying English at the same time, all for the benefit of their kids. And then you think, well, what does it take to be an entrepreneur? Exactly the same thing. You've got to drop everything you've got, take a massive risk, work your butt off for a potential benefit that might not even be there. Mm. So while I wouldn't say I got any textbook business skills from my parents, that upbringing of seeing what they went through in immigration, how hard they work, the dedication, um, the goal focus had a big part of my upbringing and teaching me the skills that I need to be successful in the business world. And like when you talk about housing commission, that would have been really rough, you know, a, a rough upbringing because I can relate. I also come from housing commission, my grandparents and, you know, my uncles and aunties, they grew up on housing commission, all of them on the dole. But my mother was a really hardworking mom. She worked as, you know, a, a waitress, a barista. She had like a night job. She was doing the same thing for jobs just to survive because she was a single mom. She had to. So I think, you know, growing up, you see a lot of the struggles from her parents. Tell me about, um, the the time in housing commission in Elstonwick, what was that like? What did that teach you? Yeah, you know, you're a hundred percent spot on with the struggles you talk about, and you know, in hindsight, you think about it, and there were often fights between adults or screaming or you know, funny smells in the corridor, <laughs> um, in it's the true, you yeah. know things like that. Yeah, so as you. As you reflect on it, you do realize it's not the most wholesome place to 
to be growing up. But as a six, seven, eight, nine-year-old, as I was when we lived in the Elstomach Housing Commission flats, um, I actually loved it. Like, mm. I think back, like some of the positives is you could go outside at any time and there'd be other kids to play with. Yeah. You know, there was always that that sense of, um, you know, there was always a water fight going on or there was always, you know, a <laughs> game of chasey going on. Like th th there was always something happening. So from a social perspective, there were always other kids to play with. And yes, it's not the most wholesome place, but I wouldn't change it for the world. I think that it's, um, you know, in terms of the community aspect and seeing the struggles that other families go through and um, having kids to play with, that was a that was a really helpful thing growing up. Yeah, it's so funny that you say that because that's something that I remember in Housing Commission that you would always go outside and there'd be people up at like midnight just playing. Yeah. It's, it's such a really cool community. Um, but with the, I guess, learnings from seeing your parents struggle and, and how that happened, was there something in you where you looked at them and said, this is not the life that I want for myself when I'm an adult? Was there any moments in your life that, because you're completely almost opposite, but same yeah. values and same hustle, really? Yeah. Um, so tell me about about that. So I guess from a perspective, it wasn't so much looking at the struggle they're going through and saying, hey, I wouldn't want that. Mm -hmm. Because as a child, I had two very loving parents. I had um, every meal on the table all the time, all the opportunities. My mum could still name every single teacher that I had through primary school and high school and all the parent-teacher interviews she went to and and all that. So a very loving household. It was more of a case of we'd be in the supermarket, for instance, and I'd want something, usually stuff that I probably shouldn't have, like candy or chips or something like that. And I would I would ask for it and mum would say, you know, sorry, we can't afford that or mm. we can't afford this. So the drive more came from um, going, well, if I'm going to want stuff, I'm going to have to earn it. So, um, you know, I can't just get along in life by saying, mom, can I have this? Or dad, can I have this? That, you know, if I do want things, I'm going to have to work hard and I'm going to have to earn them. And were you a single child or did you have no, siblings? I've got a younger sister. A younger sister. And what does she do? She's in New York at the moment. She works in marketing. So she's been living in New oh, York cool. for a few years. Yeah, oh, wow. So. She she loves it over there. So she's And are uh, you guys really close? Yeah, I was just in London with her. We were hanging out. Um I see her many times a year, but yeah, we, we were very close growing up and still That's pretty so close cool. now. And did you find like your upbringing to be quite similar in your sister's views and your views and where she ended up, where you ended up um, in your life today? Certain certain things are very similar, but um I guess from because my sister's a few years younger than me, mm -hmm. for instance, she went to private schooling because by the time that um, she was ready for high school, all, we all we went to the same primary school, but by the time she was in high school, my parents had already, um, you know, we hadn't just arrived, so that progressed that progressed a lot and, um, you know, were able to, they still, it wasn't easy. They basically spent all of their savings on, uh, my sister's education, but I had a 
public schooling education the whole way through. So things were, because she was a bit younger, it was, um, you know, what she reflects on now saying a bit easier for her. But other than that, our values in terms of, um, you know, education and hard work are very aligned. So, um, you know, it's so interesting to to hear the upbringing and and how that really evolved for you and, and who you are today. I think it's so interesting to get to know somebody, how they were when they were younger and their upbringing versus what they actually do now in their lives. Um, so um, going back to the childhood, you started at a really young age. I think you started your first entrepreneurial gig as collecting golf balls yeah. and then you went into car washing and to selling TVs on eBay. That's kind of how it all started at one sense, which created like a huge FOMO, very similar to catch of the day. Actually, they we, did a very similar concept. We were roughly the same time. Catch of the day oh, started a few months after, um, oh, there you go. after Kogan started. So yeah, it was a ve- very, very similar timing. Yeah. They did quite similar thing. The, the eBay, that's how they started. So tell me about that. Like how did it, not necessarily your the golf ball and, and the car washing, um, but after that, was there any other businesses that you did that were quite good, but you just couldn't see growth and that's why you went into Kogan? Um, no, there were so there were quite a few along the way. So obviously the first one when I lived in the housing commission, that's the collecting golf balls, selling them back to golfers. Then, um, you know, got a backpack with a hose and a chamois and a sponge and went around and washed people's cars. Um, then I, through high school, actually with our CTO now, ran a website design uh, business before any, you know, we were going around convincing businesses that in the future, every business will have a website, you need one. Right, uh, right. So you're the like Gary Vee. So, so doing, <laughs> doing those sort of things. Um, also a mobile phone repair uh, business through high school that I had because what would happen is, you know, mobile phones were starting to become really popular, but as soon as a phone stopped working, people thought it's broken. Whereas you could actually Google and research online and fix 99% of things pretty easily by opening a phone up and fixing it. So I was always um, fairly techy from that perspective. So I did um, I did that through high school and um, yeah, so there was always a few businesses uh, along the way. Um, but yeah, obviously nothing anywhere near the scale of Kogan.com. Did you know when you contacted that wholesaler because you wanted a TV that you couldn't afford, did you know at that point Kogan was going to be this big? No idea. So you had no idea. I was working in the corporate world at the time and my thinking was I couldn't afford a flat screen TV, even though I was earning some decent coin. Mm. And I thought, well, let me contact the factory out of Asia, ask them for a sample, and that was going to be my TV. And one thing after another, I realized that, hang on a second, there's a business model here, and then started to put the pieces together for a business when I saw the margins that were available, the fact that it's a um, that it was very possible to do a direct-to-consumer model there. So, um, yeah, I had no idea. Even five years ago, if you said, is Kogan going to be where it is today? I would have, I would have said, no, we're, we're doing pretty well, but not that well, you know? So it's a- That's so interesting. Um, there's not a big grand plan that, that I'm executing here and it's going to plan. It's a, we know that we have to look after the customer. We have to provide value and keep scaling. And that's what we're doing as a business. But at no point did I have the vision of where it would be today. 
Wow. So you were just like, a guy. how old were you back then when you wanted the TV? 23. So you were just like, I can't afford this $4,000, $5,000 TV. So I'm going to go and try and find a wholesaler. Yeah, let's contact some fans out of Asia and say how I want a TV. And then and that's then order a sample and that'll be my TV. I'll get a cheap sample from them and and that's crazy. how instead a, you know, a business idea was born. So at that point, um, you know, when I look at it, you've got like the LGs and and the, the Samsungs. These are pretty big brands, right? These have really good reputation in the space. How did you manage to negotiate such really good deals with warehouses in China compared to like LG and Samsung and kind of underwrite them or or undercut them almost in a sense? Yeah. So when I had the idea for the business and I put all the pieces together and started pre-selling TVs, I actually contacted the factory that I'd chosen to work with Mm -hmm. and I said, hey, I want to place an order for 80 TVs. And they almost laughed at me because they said, look, we have to set up a production line for this. We can't do 80 TVs for you. We're all about mass production. You've got to order in the thousands. And I thought, well, what can I do? Because I can't order thousands of TVs. I had no money. I just had a business idea and a few pre-sales at the time. Um, And I had to convince them to want to work with me. So I actually redid all of their marketing material because it was written in very poor English. It looked really crappy, not professional. I redid all of this for them, sent it back to them and said, hey, I've redone all your marketing material. I've redone all your pricing. How did you redo that? Is your background marketing? um, No, but I, you know, threw enough time at Accenture and I did some marketing at uni and I'm pretty good around a document and making it it look pretty decent. So I did all of that um, and and sent that back to them and said, hey, look at this. I can't add value by placing a huge order, but I can add value to our relationship in other ways. They replied back straight away going, oh, thank you so much and accepted my order. They even voluntarily gave me an even better price. And, wow. um, and yeah, so that's, that's how the business started. But had it just been a commercial transaction of I'm going to pay you this much, you're going to give me these TVs, that would have never happened. So uh, it's very important to be focused on a win-win in every business interaction, probably in every life interaction, make sure that um, you know, it's, everything's mutually beneficial. But that's kind of like how you started, right, with the ADTVs. Like I'm talking now, like how are you winning – so, like, how are you negotiating with these warehouses? Like, how are you getting the lowest price compared to all the yeah. likes of LG, Samsung? These are really big brands. Like, well, how yeah, did you those, just come in out of nowhere and undercut these guys? So, those brands very often will be a supplier of panels, whether it be, you know, Samsung panels will supply the LCD panel that goes inside a TV. Um, now, in terms of our negotiating power, we're now ordering hundreds of millions of dollars of inventory out of um, Asia. So we have a lot of uh, leverage with these manufacturers and suppliers. So that creates a lot of efficiency for us. It was very hard in the early days when we were begging and convincing factories to want to work with them. Now factories are begging us to be able to supply Kogan.com. So... There would have been a lot of oh, shit ton of money into marketing for you to really push your brand out 
I could be wrong. I don't know. I'd love yeah. to know what was your strategy for the push out? Was there PR? Was there like a whole get, tell us, yeah. tell us how, I, how did I, it I happen? Yeah. I would have loved a shit ton of money to spend on marketing in the business, but we just didn't have the money. So we had to, Yeah, this was a organically funded and grown business over time. So over a period of 17 years now. So shit. You know, our our marketing initially was very PR driven. We had no marketing budget. We just had to create a buzz. Mm. One of the things that worked out well is because I grew up listening to Eminem. And I remember a time when I um, would be downloading Eminem battles with Ja Rule. And I'd like, Eminem would say stuff about Ja Rule, then Ja Rule would reply and say stuff about Eminem and then vice versa. And I'd keep downloading these. And then Eminem ended them by saying, I'm not going to respond anymore. I've sold you more records than you'll ever sell yourself. And I'd think back on that and I thought, you know, so true. I'd like never really bothered to listen to Jarul before. And now I've been downloading Jarul stuff. So I, um, I sort of kept that in the back of my head. And then when I was starting the business, I knew we're a consumer champion and every consumer champion needs an enemy. So at one point we were filming a Today Tonight episode about Kogan's one cent no reserve TVs on mm-hmm. eBay, which had generated some PR attention. And I said to the journalist when the cameras were off, I said, Oh, if you showed these prices to Jerry Harvey, he would lose his shit. He will go absolutely nuts. Mm. Do not show these to him. And then we're watching that episode on TV that evening and they took our website and showed it to Jerry Harvey and he's on there going, oh, they're not that much cheaper than us. They're only $300 cheaper on this model and only, you know, so they got a response out of him and that just blew up. So all of a sudden it became Kogan versus Harvey Norman in the media. Wow. So the advice there to any consumer champion brand is know who your enemy is, poke them until you get a response. Because at that time, it was a few (laughs) years into our business, Kogan was doing about $12 million of revenue. Harvey Norman was doing about $4 billion of revenue. So we were a tiny, irrelevant business at the time. But as far as the media was concerned, it was Kogan versus Harvey Norman. So you um, kind of leveraged a bit. We did that. And that's... From PR and, you know, a bit of guerrilla marketing to to get our brand out there because that's exactly what we had to do. And to date, um, like, uh, obviously not now, but, you know, back in the day, did you ever approach investors to invest into your company? And if so, how did that go? And Yeah, it didn't go too well. It was because it was 2006, it was very different to how it is now. Over the last few years, it's almost like if you've got um, a PowerPoint presentation or a deck, you could have gone out to um, (laughs) investors and they're fighting over one another to write you a check. That was not the business environment in 2006. I remember when I started, I went to a few uh, business people that I respected and investors and said, hey, I'm planning this business model. And um, they, they were like, well, look. E-commerce is uh, for books and CDs. Nobody's ever going to buy a TV online. So I had to try and convince them that, wow. hey, yeah, they would, but they they wouldn't listen. So that's why I had to start the business through a pre-sale and it was all organically funded from the very, very early days of the business. So no, no investors, our first ever um, external funding into the business came at our IPO 
when the business was yeah. 10 years old. Wow. So that was, it pretty much was all bootstrapped, self-funded from from the revenue you guys were making, injecting yeah. back into the business to, to grow. Yeah. Do you feel like, because um, you guys are, are pretty much like a tech company, um, do you feel like it would have scaled a lot faster if you had a ton of capital in the business? Possibly. And do you, do you feel like you would be in a better position in terms of your revenue and timing if you had that 20 million, 30 million, 50 million dollar check? Yeah, maybe. Injection? Maybe. Okay, um, interesting. I, I, sometimes the thought crosses our mind and go, hey, maybe if it scaled it early, mm. earlier, um, you know, it would be even bigger now. Uh, but we tried the the investment community wasn't there when this business was getting started. So, so you did try, try and take a couple did, jabs and it just didn't, yeah, didn't work did, out. We did yeah. try raise money at that time, but mm. it was around the time. Like we were, when we started this business, we were, sh- uh, we were shouting from rooftops and saying e-commerce is the future. You've got to have an online presence. Mm. Um, online shopping is a great in industry. It's so convenient. It's all of this and that. And now the business leaders around the country were, oh, e-commerce isn't real. It's just a fad. It's just short-term trend or all of this sort of stuff. So um, it was finally through COVID that uh, our biggest retailers started running TV ads saying, hey, come shop online. Um, (laughs) You know, to us, it was sort of being vindicated for what we've been saying for uh, the For last years. 17 years. Yeah. yeah. It's so interesting. I feel like um, the internet days, I feel like now we're in this era of those days, but in Web3 blockchain, right? Like everybody's saying, oh my God, it's such a like this. It's, you know, I just think in in anything, even in Web2, it's a bear market for everybody. The market is not a good market right now for everyone. So it's just, um, it's, it's interesting that you say that. That just kind of came to mind. Well, the other thing is that, it's important to keep in mind is if you look at technology, it takes us a long time Very. to know how to use technology. Like GPS was around for like 50 years mm. before the first in-car GPS unit. Like it was, the yeah. internet was around for like 50 years before a web browser in the way that we know it today and being used how it is. Even like, electric cars were around for a really long time, but nobody ever talks about it, right? Yeah. It's like or, these actually this happened a really long time ago. We're just talking about it now, though. <laughs> there were news websites for um, yeah. 20 years before they realized they could let people comment at the bottom of them. You mm-hmm. know, there was um, people had been using using the internet for 20, 30 years before social media came along. Like it's all, all of these things show that like technology, the actual underlying technology often comes out well before the you know killer use case for it of the like really good, really good way to use it. So it's probably mm. the same thing with, you know, Web3 or even AI getting talked about a lot now. It's like, yeah, chat GPT is cool, but that's probably not the implementation. Mm. Um, so... Uh, yeah, it does. It, it's very often that a technology comes out, but it takes us a while to realize how to use it. Like when we went from radio to television, the news report would be a camera sitting in front of a person on a mic, similar to how we're doing now, just down the barrel, recording them read yeah. the news. 
it took them 20 years to realize that they could cut away to the news segment and to show the news actually happening. Yeah, yeah. So it takes a while often. It's so it's so interesting. I think technology is such a fascinating space to be in because I feel like a lot of people do overcomplicate it, like not just technology but business in general. Do you see like, because I, I was listening to something um, that you were you talking on some podcast or an article I was reading and you said something like a lot of people come up to you with ideas of what they're trying to do and then two months later or six months later you have a chat with them and there's, there's still an idea. They haven't actually executed. And do you feel like that comes from like fear or people just overthinking business? And I feel like so many people overthink it and don't actually start because there's so many changes and growths you need to go through you know, yeah. that people don't get, right? But they think you have to be perfect. You have to have the right market, the right timing. It's not really ever the right timing. I think you just really got to start. A hundred percent. I think that, um, you know, th- there's a few dynamics probably at play there. One of them is that perfection is the enemy of progress. Oh Everyone gosh. tries to perfect something at the idea phase and never actually launches anything. Whereas the truth about business is whatever idea you have, whatever plan you have, whatever's in mind, chances are things are actually going to be different as soon as you launch. And you'll learn more about your customers, what they like, what they don't like. You'll change your product and you'll you'll navigate to where your customers are. But totally. people are a bit scared to take that step or they do a bit too much planning. Um, so, you know, I, I, my advice, especially to young entrepreneurs would be that- How young are we talking? Let's be specific. Uh, 18 plus, okay. si- even okay, 16 cool. plus. Like yeah. if, you're, if you're good enough- If you're to, starting out, let's just say yeah. if you're starting out yeah, wanting six, to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, 16 plus, you're, yeah. you know, you've got enough life skills there to, yeah. to have a crack yeah. at a business. Just go for it. Like mm. the risk at that point is so low. The real- entrepreneurs, because, you know, when you talk about risk-taking and entrepreneurship, they're the people with families and mortgages and kids who, like, they're the real risk-takers who say, hey, you know what? I'm quitting my job. I've got this idea. I'm so passionate about it. I'm just going to go, go, go and do it. Mm-hmm. They're putting the livelihood of their family on their on the line to back their idea. Like, what I started wasn't even risky at all because I was 23 years old, living at home with my parents at the time. No matter what happened with the business, I had a roof over my head and meals on the dinner table every night. So it's like I, nothing could have gone wrong. There's, it's almost no risk at all. But it's yeah, it's when you're older that the real risks start. So to yeah, young entrepreneurs, um, I would say yeah, like. It's so low risk to have a crack at a business when you're young. Forget about perfection. You're going to learn stuff as you go. Learn. There's no better um, school than actually doing it. Um, mm. So my advice would be to just, just go, 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 totally. just do it. Yeah, it's so true. Like I see so many um, early stage startups that I get involved in. Like they come with a product and I feel like two years later, it's a completely different product now. Yeah. It's like they start in like something complete, like they're like, this is the idea. And then two years later, it's like, oh, we're an insurance company now. What? I thought we were you don't know focusing you, on this. Yeah, yeah. You don't know what you don't know at the start. Like you can 100%. hypothesize about the market and the customer and what they want and what the product should look yeah. like and what price points it might work at. But yeah, um, it's so yeah, true. It's, 
you, you pivot and navigate to where go. the customers are. It's also like, you know, over the years, because we've got a very high functioning website serving hundreds of thousands of consumers every single day, people come to me and they say, oh, check out my website. Is it any good? And my answer is always like, how would I know? Like, I don't know what your customers think. Uh, like, have, have a look at your analytics. I'm like, one person of the market, yeah, right? Yeah, like, <laughs> I, I might say something that's completely wrong. Like, I, I so can't true. tell you if your website or offer is good. Like, have a look at your analytics. What pages are making people stay? What pages are making people leave? What pages mm-hmm. cause them to transact a lot? Like, that's the real stuff you should be looking at. My opinion's completely irrelevant. Totally. I think um, it's something I always say. I say, just try it. The market will tell you. Post it, 100%. the market will tell you. 100%. Put it out there. Yeah, it's it's so true. You're spot on. So tell me, um, so startups, you get people coming to you. Uh, you obviously have advice to give. So what investments have you made to date in startups? Like, do you get in early, like pre-seed, seed, series A? And how many are you involved in right now? Uh, there's a... So I'm I'm involved from being an investor perspective in um you know a few a few startups through my family office there'd be a list of about twenty. Okay. Um, usually it's either areas that I'm very fascinated by or areas that I know a lot about, being you know tech, e-commerce, um, and being hey this is a this is a company that that could really work. So um, yeah, they're they're varied. I wish I had more time. Um, to spend on it than I do. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's been a few high conviction plays that, you know, I'm very proud of the, very proud of the investments and where the companies have gone. But, um, but yeah, it's, uh, there's about, there's about 20, but I wish there were more. Yeah, it's hard. So, what's your day now? Like, where's your time focused? Are you still the CEO of Kogan? Yeah. So, full time. Do you think you're going to get a CEO eventually and maybe take a step back? What, what does that look like? Yeah, I, I can't. When see, does it stop? I, I can't see that happening. I am. Um, <laughs> we're in two of the most competitive industries in the world. So, we're a manufacturer of consumer electronics as one of our primary categories, and consumer electronics is one of the most competitive industries out there. And then on top of that, we're in retail, which is also one of the most competitive. Super. Out there. So that competition makes me jump out of bed in the morning. And then we've assembled a team of such incredible people that getting to work with them every single day is just absolutely exciting. I think that we have the best people in e-commerce in Australia working in South Melbourne at the Kogan.com office. So my main job as a CEO is to not get in the way of those people. Like okay. You know, so assembling an amazing team um, is my job and then making sure that there's no blockers for my team to do what they have to do. So, um, going back to, um, before, cause I want to ask the question of like, what is it, uh, what, what's that going to look like for you in the next say, you know, year or two or five years? Like when are you looking at resigning? I'd like to know what does a day look like for you? Like what's your routine? Do you get up at 5am? Do you get up at 9am? Tell us like, What's a day look like, an average day? Yeah, there's probably no average days. At the moment, it looks like (laughs) get up at 2 a.m. and work till 5. No way. I just came back from Europe, so I'm all jet lagged. So at the moment, at the moment, last few days. But like, let's just say without the jet lag, yeah, standard day. 
I'd probably get up at six. Okay, that's pretty um, decent. Yeah, probably get up at six, have a sauna and a swim, so like hot cold therapy that really gets oh, you going so for good. the day. Yeah. Um, then jump on the emails and check what needs to be done quickly. Um, fire off a few questions or um, you know ideas or instructions for the day to to the key people at Kogan. Head into the office. Attend a few meetings. Um, you know, I often also, even if they're not formal meetings, you'll see me walking around the office, just chatting to key stakeholders and um, you know, getting getting progress updates from them. Then I would come home, have dinner, and then probably jump jump online again, or just be on my phone. Um, cool. And what's going on around the world? But so, there's no real, there's no routine. Real there's no routine. Yeah. Do you do meditate? Do you journal? It's a bit of do meditation. You- I've realised that, like, because I'm so, I I rarely get away from tech. That things like I love going for a run. Oh, how good and, is a run? Yeah. So running in the sauna, and I guess when I think of them, I'm like, why do I love those two things? It's probably because there's no phone involved. I'm right. completely disconnected. Yeah. I don't I don't wear AirPods or headphones. I'm just like, if I go for a run, it's just me and my Garmin just running. Awesome. And obviously in the sauna, um, it's hot, so nothing works anyway. So it's like, it I guess they're a form of meditation. You can probably put it through this, like there's a speaker, but that's about it. <laughs> so you don't have any routines. That's so interesting. Um, out of out of interest, do you have like life coaches, psychologists? Do you have mentors? Do you speak to people? You've never have you done any of that work yet? Yeah, Is sp- that something you think about? I speak to a lot of people in terms of in the industry, accomplished business people. I'm always, um, you know, always engaged and chatting and going for lunches and dinners and coffees and, mm-hmm. and seeing what's on this. Some you know, a community of incredible. Um, high achieving entrepreneurs in Australia. There is. It's super yeah. mature here yeah. compared so to other places. You know, yeah. That, that, that's really, really good. In terms of, um, you know, formal mentors, I don't, I don't have any. Like I mentioned before, my, the role models I look up to are my parents, just like, you know, being able to reflect on my upbringing now and what they've gone through and totally like that. Them, I, I look at them in awe and I feel extremely indebted to my parents for the opportunities that they've given me and my sister. That's so amazing that you say that, like, you know, because some people can have some type of hate towards their parents with their upbringing and the fact that you just are in such awe of what they could do with what they had is, is pretty incredible. Yeah. So, um, there's no, there's no, um, I guess, work for you that you see in the future of, I guess, not spiritual work, but like, you know, people talk about trauma work and getting to know yourself and doing inner work and all those things. Does that kind of just go over your head when you hear this? Or is that something that you think about sometimes? Mm, Yeah. I'm curious. I'd probably say closer to just going over my head. I know I've been to a few retreats and things where there's, you know, what was the one? I went to Guingana and they do the- um, Is it like the silent retreats for no no technology for 12 days or something? Yeah, you disconnect from tech, but it's not silent. And vegan food? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that sort of stuff. But like I know a lot of the times they're like, oh, yeah, just- 
clear your head, get rid of all your thoughts. Yeah. I'm not good at that because I'm like, I'm there thinking, no, no, no. I really like what's in here. Don't go away. Don't go away. I have to follow up on this item and this item and this item. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's probably... It's probably an area of my life that I need to look at at some point. And I know there's a lot. But you're not ready yet. Yeah, but not. I get it. I get it. It's it's so interesting because I think uh, a lot of high achievers, they know that they want to do it eventually, but they're like, it's just not the right time. I've got too much to do right now. I'm not going there. So I think that's that's good self-awareness that you know, um, at least to what position you're in. That would be exactly where I'm at. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So what does it look like for you in the next five, ten years? Resign from Kogan, CEO, oh, yeah, exit. Nah, yeah. Ca- what does that see, look like? Can't see a um, resignation happening. I know. Ever? Look, you, I mean, well, you I, have I, to I, resign I, at I, some point. Do you not want to just like sip on like a pina colada on the beach and lay back and just like do nothing? I get to go on enough when, holidays, but it's like when does that two happen? or three days in, I'm like, oh, shit, what do I do now? Like, you know, uh, like yeah, my limit of like sitting by the pool might be. I get like, it. One day, like I, I don't know. Like I, um, yeah. Th- look, there's no doubt that things get pretty challenging and pretty pretty tough at times. And at times, you do think like, oh shit, this is really really hard work. And mm. the truth is, like, completely don't have to be doing it. Could be off doing whatever else I want. Uh, but. Any time I've been without it for a few hours or a day or two, I I feel empty. Like I I can't. Yeah. Um, I can't not be doing it. And I know a lot of uh, colleagues and business people that you know have either sold their businesses or exited their businesses, and a lot struggle after. Um, you know, they they're happy initially, then they struggle because they absolutely loved what they were doing and they absolutely loved the challenge and the thrill and mm. of all of that. So, yeah, uh, like I can't, if I ever thought five or 10 years ahead historically, I would have got it completely wrong in the same way that if I do that now, I'd have it completely wrong. But mm. right now, I, I can't imagine doing anything else. And I think, you know, this is where a lot of people question uh, high achievers. You know, they're like, why haven't you got a balanced life? Like, you know, why is it that you work so hard? Like clearly you're not happy and people don't realize that that's not necessarily true. We actually truly love, you know, you truly love what you do, right? Like it's, it's, it's a passion. And as soon as we stop, it's like, oh my God, where is, where is my thing gone? Like, where's the, the, the fire, the spark? Like I want that good feeling again. Right. And what's a balanced life? Shouldn't you try and do as much as what you love? Right. Or do you want to balance what you love with what you hate? It's like, you know, it's like a balanced life should be do as much of what you love. And like, absolutely. I love love my work. I love spending time with my family. I love um, coming up with new ideas and implementing them. Like, fun. Yeah. So it's like, do the the stuff that you love. Like, I don't think life's about balance. It's about, you know, if you're fortunate enough to be able to structure it in a way, where you get to spend your entire time doing things that you love. I mean, that's in, that's amazing to me. It sounds incredible. Um, so I'm going to wrap up the podcast and I'd like to just um, ask you a question of, you know, this is, this is actually not on the notes, but it's just kind of come to me. Uh, I would like to 
what advice would you give somebody or let's just say, you know, when people look at you, they're like, oh, you know, he's achieved a lot in um, a really long time, but you've, you've done extremely well. The fact that you've got no injection whatsoever, completely bootstrapped, that's pretty incredible. Not many businesses are like that in Australia or anywhere really that I see. Um, what was that one thing or say two things you can say that really made you who you are and made the company to what it is now? Like what is the, you know, cause everyone has these like special ingredients, right. To, to make something amazing. Like what is the one or two things that you can say that really made Kogan and Ruslan? I'd say that, um, you know, one of the ingredients has been our fact-based approach, the our internal philosophy of it is what it is. So we mm-hmm. believe that you can avoid reality, but you can't avoid the consequences of avoiding reality. So our internal philosophy is one of objectivism. We deal with a lot of data and information in our organization, and we know that um, very often you can see reports or things in other organizations being manipulated to make a manager or someone with an idea look like it was a great idea or the project really worked or things like that. We encourage internally debate and discussion around all ideas, no matter what level of the organization that you're at in the pursuit of truth, saying that what are we actually looking at? What do the facts show? Is this actually a good thing or a bad thing? Did we improve this or did we make it worse? Mm. Um, all egos aside, everything else aside, a complete data-driven fact-based approach at uh, problem solving. So that internally in the organization has been um, one of the one of the really important things. The other one I'd say is operating a meritocracy. Because we're a fairly innovative company, we've got an internal philosophy that there is always a better way. We believe that the way we're doing things now is just the best way we've come up with until now, and everything is up for grabs. Everything is up to be questioned. I've seen in the corporate world before people say things like, oh, that's just the way we've always done it. Or no way, Jim came up with that idea and Jim's a senior manager, so it's his process. We can't change the process. So things like that. That is not how it works uh, in our organization. Everyone from all levels is allowed to call out bullshit, is allowed to say, hey, that's not working. Have a look at the facts. Have a look at the data. Have a look at this process. I've got a better way to do it. Mm-hmm. And um, we we run a meritocracy where people get judged, you know, not on what uni degree they got 10 years ago or how long they've been at Kogan for, but purely on their contribution to our organization. Um, so that meritocracy for us is very important. Like I've hired Uber drivers that I've been in the Uber with before. Because That's amazing. For them, they're, well, it's the ultimate meritocracy. They're people who acknowledge that the harder they work, the mm. more they're going to get paid. Right. You know, so it's a... Uh, um, so how did this work? Did you just say, oh, hey, I, I really remember. like you. Can, do you want a job? Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I often like there. every Uber driver's got a story to tell. Like it's, They uh, do, don't they? Yeah, They're so the best storytellers. Yeah, so, so it's always, um, you know, whenever if, if I get chatting to a driver and it's like, oh, yeah, how'd you end up here? And it's like well, yeah. they've got a uni degree or they're doing this for extra money or this has happened in their life or whatever it is. And yeah. every now and then I'm like, hey, 
you know, this person seems really driven, really, really good, really motivated. They work in our meritocracy. I'd be like, hey, mate, if you're interested in something else, yeah, here's my number, email. give me a buzz. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? I love that. Um, last, Lastly, uh, Rosan, thank you so much for being on the show. Like, you've been amazing. By the way, you're so down to earth in real life. Like at first I was like so intimidated. I was like, oh my God, like I was saying earlier, but like, you're just so cool. Like you're so easy flowing and going and I really appreciate you for coming on the show. Um, where can people find you if they wanted to connect or follow? Are you on LinkedIn, Instagram? Do you yeah. have a TikTok account that we don't know about? Nah, no, no TikTok. <laughs> I, um, I did have an account. I probably do have an account. I, I never use it, but I remember being on there thinking like, whoa, where did that hour go? What just happened? Oh my uh, gosh, right. Yeah, so so uh, bad. Uh, but yeah, Instagram, LinkedIn, they're um um the main two. Of those, yeah. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the well, show. Lovely to chat. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Startups and Unicorns with Belinda Agnew. If you haven't already, be sure to follow the show. X-Enabler is your one-stop tech innovation partner, creating unmatched digital solutions and turning tech visions into a reality. For more information, visit xenabler.digital. Get in touch with Belinda by following at Belinda Agnew Official.